You are now listening to the London International Christian Church Podcast. A Roman governor, and he didn't write the book of Acts to a Roman governor. Theophilus is literally a literary device. It just means friends of God. Now, I hope you are feeling like you're friends of God today. Amen? Amen. Yes, okay, I just had to check right there. Uh, he says, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken to heaven. And that's exactly our charge right there. Amen. You do it and you teach it until you're taken to heaven. Of course, I love the word Theophilus. That can be said to be the Ophilus name in the Bible right there. Theophilus. <laughs> Michael Hart again, guys. Michael Hart tells me these jokes to tell you guys. And I, I, I in my spirit, I don't want to do it. But, you know. <laughs> Verse 3. <laughs> it says, after his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. And, and you got to get a picture of this. You got to understand, Jesus Christ was crucified. How many of you have been to a funeral? Can you imagine looking in the casket at the individual that you, you love so dearly? And seeing that death, remembering your tears, remember understanding and all the memories that flash by that you had together and that those memories are now gone, that you cannot have this relationship anymore. It is over. It is finished. They they have gone to another world. And yet with Jesus Christ, he rose again. That would be convincing enough, would it not? Can you imagine someone dies and then all of a sudden you're like, oh my goodness, they're alive. That's all you would need. You wouldn't need anybody else's testimony. You saw him die. You saw him rise from the dead. You'd be convinced right there. Yet here, the disciples still needed many convincing proofs, just highlighting that sometimes even the most incredible miracles aren't enough for us. We still need to get into the word of God to get deep convictions, to understand that Jesus rose from the dead. And this is a powerful, powerful witness. And it's historically proven. The powerful thing about about Jesus is, It isn't just Christians who believe Jesus died and rose. There are individuals who don't even believe in the Christian faith, historians that highlight he walked on the earth and he died. He died. He lived and he died. And yet his bones were not in the tomb. Jesus rose from the dead. Verse four says on occasion while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. He says in a few days that there's going to be a power that's going to come on you. And in fact, if you're a disciple, you understand you cannot do the work of Christ without worshiping Christ. You need the power of God before you do anything. And he tells them to wait for the power. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, the funny thing about the, the waiting part, as I study this, is he tells them to wait. And I, and I thought, I go, you know, that, that, that kind of is, that's exactly what Christians don't like to do. We, we don't like to wait. <laughs> we, we struggle with just waiting <laughs> for that husband, waiting for that wife to come along and say, I do, or I'll at least date you. And then once you do get married and your wife is still in there doing her makeup, and you're struggling with waiting, you need the power of the Holy Spirit to give you the faith right there, just to hang on in there right there. So we can struggle with waiting as Christians. Are you with me here? 
So, so when they met together, they asked, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? I thought that was funny. Jesus comes back. He raises and, and, and they have this time to wait. And they're thinking about the one question they got to ask Jesus. And the first thing they ask is, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel again? They thought it was a physical kingdom. They thought it was a physical, a political deliverance that they were, they were going to get from Jesus Christ. And of course, the question I ask you is, if you could ask Jesus one question, what would it be? What would it be here? They, they wanted that political deliverance, just highlighting that they weren't really in touch with the spiritual realm that we live in. That it was a spiritual kingdom, a spiritual movement that Jesus was trying to start. He said to them, it's not for you to know times and date. The father said by his own authority, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And the church said, Amen. that's powerful right there. The movement happened and Jesus tells them it's going to go all around the world. It's going to be a radical movement that turns the world up, side, down. You know, I've been sharing my faith with, a, with, a, with an incredible man uh, by the name of Orville. And uh, he's connected me with several different individuals throughout London. Uh, one of the individuals he connected with me with uh, kind of is part of a group called Shift. Now, this group Shift, their, their goal is to shift the thinking of Parliament to get Parliament to start thinking about Jesus Christ. And to introduce Christian teachings into their laws, so on and so forth, so that we can get this, this, this government, this, this nation here, London, to change from a spiritual standpoint. Pretty awesome movement right there, amen? Whether they understand what it really means to be a disciple or not, won't go there. However, their heart, that is pretty awesome, is it not? I got invited to one of the events. And... It was Monday night, so of course I God humbled me, so I had to kind of hobble on in there to the event. Now you say, well, where was the event? The House of Parliament. The House of Parliament. I went to the House of Parliament. First thing, I was down at the House of Parliament. I was going, what in the world has the Lord got me doing down here? People were demonstrating, and you had the Kiev protests and this, that, and the other. And then you have to go through the the the. Uh, you know, the check to the security, right? And as you're going through security, I mean, they check you for everything. They check me for fleas. I mean, they, they scratch my skin. I mean, are you really black? Okay, yeah, you are black. I mean, okay, are you American? You know, everything, passport, visa, this, this, boom, boom, all kind of devices. And I finally make it in. I'm like, oh, I'm in. I'm in the House of Parliament right here. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, oh my goodness, I'm in, I'm in the House of Parliament. I'm in the House of Parliament. <laughs> and I start... I kind of got a little, I was like, what? And then I start, Acts 17, 26 came. It's like, wow, God determines the times and places. What in the world am I doing here? This can't be just this coincidence that God has me in the house of parliament. So we made our way on in. I made my way on in. And I went to this religious event. They had speakers and teachers and all this stuff like that. And, uh, you know, it was great just to, to, to be at the event. But earlier that day, uh, because I've been studying out radical movements, Earlier that day, I was sharing with Michelle some of the different movements I'd been studying out. Number one, the Moravian movement, a Chris, Christian movement. Of course, this guy was German, and he started an incredible revival right there. Amen for Germany right there? Okay. And 
I said, I said, Michelle, look, look at this German guy started a movement right there. Michelle's like, hey, man, hey, man. I said, what about I said, also John and Charles Wesley. These guys were British guys. They started a movement right here and, and, and it happened. And, and, and they, they were powerful. And these guys believed in the abolition of just abolishing slavery right there. When John Wesley went to America, he went to Georgia. He saw slavery. It, it made his heart just sick. He came back to England. He got it banned. He got it taken out. He, he was an incredible preacher that changed England and helped change America. Right. There. Awesome. Michelle's like, amen, amen. Well, when I went to the event, (laughs) when I get to the event, the speaker is going, you know, this is the room where John and Charles Wesley have come to help abolish slavery. This is the room where Wilberforce actually got it abolished, turning from being a former slave owner to getting it, getting it abolished this is the room nothing in this room has changed since that time so you guys can't be taking any pictures right there i go okay i've already sinned because <laughs> i've taken some pictures right there and, but he said that and i went oh my goodness god this is the lord again this is the lord and then he said lord we we understand the african-americans and what they went through i'm the only african-american sitting in the house of parliament so. <laughs> True story. Help there to be someone who wants to start a movement in this great country. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh my gosh. I didn't get happy. I got afraid. To be honest. I kind of slipped out. I kind of got teary. I was like, what we are doing is bigger than just a little, little Haverstock Community Center Sunday thing. God is calling us to be a movement. A radical movement that wants to go around the world. A radical movement that's known in our generation as being separate, as being different, as being more committed, more hardline, more focused on Jesus and his church than any other church. You say, well, have there been any groups like that in England? Maybe that's an American thing. I don't think it's an American thing. I think it's a Christian thing. I'm inspired by this movement. They're called the Salvation Army. In 1878, we saw the birth of one of the most outrageous, incredible, radical, zealous movements here in church history in England. I'm speaking, of course, about the Salvation Army, which for the first 30 years was one of the most extreme, unusual, effective Christian movements that the world has ever known. Made up mostly of young fiery zealots and led by the spiritual dynamo of a man named William Booth. This was God's answer to the extreme measures that were called for to combat the apathy and the spiritual sin of the times. And there can be little doubt that we live in such times again today. Originally named simply the Christian mission. Booth's organization always had the spirit of movement behind it. The spirit of movement, the spirit of a movement feel about it. But it wasn't until they went military in 1878 with flags, battle songs, war uniforms, etc. That the whole thing exploded worldwide. Booth himself became the army's first general. This is no longer simply a home missionary church group. It was a holy guerrilla warfare ministry against the darkness and the evil of this world. Booth's motto was simple. Go for souls and go for the worst. 
(laughs) It was nothing less than all-out warfare against the spiritual forces of evil. Within five years of becoming a military-style army church, Booth's 50 mission stations had become 634 stations. And his soldiers were some of the most innovative, daring, warlike, and they used the word disciples, but amen, warlike disciples of Jesus that had ever walked the earth. There was so much opposition against them. In the year 1882 alone in England, 669 Salvationists were physically assaulted. 56 army buildings were burned, partially wrecked and destroyed. Skeleton armies of local toughs were formed to attack the Salvation Army. And 86 Salvation Army soldiers were thrown in jail for causing disturbances with their street preaching. There were literally street riots almost everywhere in England. And they went front page news and around the world. In several years that followed, things only got wilder and worse. In the year of 1884 alone, no less than 600 members of the Salvation Army were arrested and imprisoned in England by the authorities. In many respects, the Salvation Army was a young person's crusade as many young idealistic people joined. Many of the officers were very young, yet extremely, extremely zealous in many ways. This youth proved to be an advantage rather than a disadvantage to their movement. There were literally riots on the streets of England and around the world when the Salvation Army held their street meetings and their marches. At least one female officer, amen, Women's Day? At least one female officer in England was kicked to death by an angry mob and many others were seriously injured for preaching their message. And amazingly, It was not uncommon for the local clergy to be involved in inciting these mobs against this Christian movement. But like many movements, after the original founders died, the Salvation Army then slowly settled down to become kinder, nicer, more respectable, and gradually lost their innovation, their radical fighting edge that made it what it was was and that's just the salvation army what about the sold out discipling movement what will be said about us what will be said about our view of Christendom and how we take it around the world will there be the incredible stories of men and women that are radical zealots that want to change England and change the world Last month in America was Black History Month. I've been studying out all movements, guys, but the civil rights was kind of a movement that you may have heard of. Had a few implications on people that happen to be of my skin color right there. Amen. Uh, and through studying it out, I see that they, they were radical. They did some incredible things that we can learn from today. Human progress is neither automatic nor inevitable. Every step towards the goal of justice requires sacrifice, suffering, and struggle. The tireless exertions and passions concerned of dedicated individuals. You know who said that? Who do you think? Winston Churchill. Rosa Parks. Ah, who said Martin Luther King? Martin Luther King, he said that. But that 
wasn't his name. His name was Michael King. Come on, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, just, I just had to put that in there right there. Because Martin Luther King Sr. traveled to Germany. He was inspired by a movement. He was inspired by Martin Luther. And so as he traveled to, to, to Germany, he's like, this guy, huh, huh, huh. I'm going to name my kid after him. So he changed his name from Michael King to Martin Luther King. Pretty cool, huh? Who are you going to name your kid after? Who are you going to name your children after? Pretty powerful. Here's a question I have. What if there never was a civil rights movement? What if there never was? I mean, I started thinking about what everything that everything that Wilberforce and Wesley went through to, to abolish slavery. And yet we as Christians, we have to abolish the slavery of the mind, the slavery of sin in people's lives and our lives. And I thought about what if these people would have never, ever sacrificed it all for these movements? What if there never was a civil rights movement? And yet it made me go, we've got to be a radical movement. We've got to be a radical movement. There is no other option to take the, the gospel around this world. See, the first century church was more radical than anything I did. They, 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 they actually evangelized the nations in one generation. And let me tell you something. We're going to do it. This we're, we're, Our movement's going to do it. We're going to do it, guys. Let's keep going. Chapter 2. Takes radical commitment. Radical commitment. Verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. So suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separating came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard the sound, the crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. And of course, we find right there that speaking in tongues is speaking intelligible languages. The first use of tongues in the Bible was speaking intelligible words, not unintelligible words between you and God. That scripture in first Corinthians where it talks about you speak the, 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 the words of God, even if I speak in the tongues of angels of men, that is what's called a hyperbole, an exaggerated statement to make a point. The first use of tongues in the Bible was languages it was languages no languages of that time yet there are movements that teach something quite different right here in this country he says in verse 7 utterly amazed they ask are not all these men who are speaking galileans see galileans weren't seen to be great speakers back then they, they were actually seen as unscholarly and not able to really kind of like me being in Madrid, hablo de español, if you understand what I mean. <laughs> so they go, what's this American doing? I mean, what's this Galilean doing? Oh my goodness, rattling off all these different languages here. 
So the house in each of us hears them in his own native language. Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Figria, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya, Cyrene. Visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judy, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in their own tongue, in our own tongue. Amazed and perplexed, they asked each other, what does this mean? Some of them made fun of them and said, eh, they've had too much wine. That's how unspiritual the temple had gotten. People were drinking at church. And sadly, when you go throughout England, all these incredible historic movements that created the very churches that we have here, they're now being turned into pubs where you go and you get drunk. You don't go and get, hear the word of God. And I really believe it's just, England's waiting for a movement. Just waiting for people that love God more than they love their life. Verse 14. says, then Peter stood up with the 11, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. This is a different Peter than the guy who chickened out in front of the girl right there when she asked him to share his faith right there. Remember? This is a guy who stands on up. So what did we learn from that? Peter failed, but, but he failed forward. See, God, God can totally, totally work with a failure. He just cannot work with a quitter. God can totally work with a failure. I mean, this is the kind of thing that fires up people like Martin Scott and James Morgan and Michael Hart. I mean, and myself, I mean. And even George, I mean, we're the kind of guys that go, God works with failures? Oh, that's awesome. I'm glad I'm in the church. I've I've failed a lot. I've messed up. But you don't quit. You fail forward. Fellow Jews and all of you who are in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I'll pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women. I'll pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. And the church said, this was an incredible sermon. He preaches the word. He tells them their sins, put Jesus on the cross. And that they, and then we find what it produced. Chapter Two in verse 42. We'll pick it up in verse 36 before we get to 42. Peter says this, therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you've crucified both Lord and Christ. See, Jesus has got to be Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. Right? We want Jesus as our savior. I want to go to heaven. But sometimes we don't want him as our Lord. Lord means controller. Lord means master. And yet nowadays we live in this, this, this fear of being controlled. I don't want to be controlled. Yeah, you're being controlled. You bought the iPad, iPhone 1, iPhone 2, iPhone 3, iPhone 4, iPhone 5, and you're waiting for iPhone 6. The media is totally controlling. What are you talking about? You don't want to be controlled. You're totally controlled. And you're not even happy with your iPhone 5. You're waiting for iPhone 6. And you, I don't want to be controlled. You're totally being controlled. The media has got you. It's got you by the neck. You're buying gadget after gadget after gadget. But then when it comes to talk about Christianity, I don't want to be controlled. Doesn't, you're already being controlled. We're already being controlled. There, there's, a, there's a gospel of godlessness being preached to us on a daily basis. Bread and circuses. 
that's what they did back in the day when they really wanted to send an opiate to the people so they would not respond to the gospel. They just said, hey, just eat and get entertained. Bread and circuses. And yet those are the two things that people are fired up about today. Eating and entertainment. And yet we see in the Bible, the first century church was a radical movement that made Jesus Lord and Christ in their lives. Amen. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said, Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promises for you, your children, and all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will come. With many other words, he warned them and pleaded with them. See, he was hard line with the warning, but he also had the velvet touch with the pleading. And yet to be a radical movement that changes the world, we need to be hard line. But we need to have that velvet touch, that, that, that soft touch of love that people need so desperately in this world. That soft touch just to be able to say, sister, we're going to make it together. Brother, we're going to get through it together. You you are in a lot of sin right now. (laughs) You're prideful. You're not very humble. But we're going to get through it together. I've been there before. I've been on top. I've been on bottom. I'll be in both places again. I'm with you. That velvet touch. That's what that first century church had. That's what we need as well. Amen, church? He says this in verse 40. He warned them and pleaded with them. He says, save yourself from this corrupt generation, and this generation is very corrupt. Those who accepted the message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe. Many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods. They gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they had an evangelism blitz. (laughs) Right? Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes, ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved and the church said is that not radical commitment they devoted themselves they didn't know each other they all came there for the feast of harvest got told they weren't right with the lord got baptized and realized wait a minute my family is in another country i I just came here for vacation (laughs) hold on wait a minute and yet they had to figure out discipling and housing and all kinds of crazy stuff for 3,120 people right there. Woo! That's radical patience. That's radical conviction. That, that's a radical movement. And some of us are just trying to figure out discipling for a couple of people right there. <laughs> we're just trying to figure it out. Yet we see the first century church, they, they, they were so committed. And when you're so committed to Jesus, Jesus will fix it. He'll find a way. They were very, very committed. Very committed. I'm inspired by individuals that really just just preached and, and, and said things that that went against the grain and, and, and that forced that forces me to have a different thinking. You know, uh, I'm inspired. Of course, we got Women's Day coming on up. I want to inspire some of the women with uh, uh, an incredible writer, an essayist, an apologist for Jesus, uh, who is from right right here in good old England. This is what Dorothy Sayers has to say. You may have heard of her. 
She says this. When it comes to commitment, it is worse than useless for Christians to talk about the importance of Christian morality unless they are prepared to take their stand upon the fundamental Christian teachings. It is a lie to say that doctrine doesn't matter. It matters enormously. It is, a, it is fatal to let people suppose that Christianity is only a mode of feeling. It is a vitally necessary, it is vitally necessary to insist that it is first and foremost a rational explanation of the universe. It is hopeless to offer Christianity as a vaguely idealistic aspiration of some simple and consoling kind. It is, on the contrary, a hard, tough, committed, exacting, and complex doctrine steeped in a drastic and uncompromising realism. And it is fatal to imagine that everybody knows quite well what Christianity is and needs only a little of encouragement to practice it. The brutal fact is that in this Christian country of England, not one person in a hundred has the faintest notion what the church teaches about God, man, society, or Jesus Christ. Theologically, this country is degenerating into the flight from, uh, into the flight from reason and the death of hope in Jesus. How'd you like to have that sister at Women's Day? That's radical, is it not? She went to Oxford University. Of course, Oxford University's, uh, their, their motto is uh, Domi, Domi, Dominus Illuminatio. I just blew it. <laughs> Fail forward right there. Dominus Illuminatio, which means the Lord is my light. The Lord is my light. Pretty cool. What's cool is to find that one of the most incredible teaching institutions, Oxford, saw Christianity, Jesus, and, and higher education, not as enemies, but as partners in the gospel. Yet as we move on through the course of the 21st century, oh no. You can be radically committed to everything but Jesus. You're radically committed to science. You're radically committed to all these other things. And yet this woman says, no, Christianity is a rational explanation for the universe. And she went to Oxford. Amen. How committed are you to what we believe? How devoted are you? What do we believe? Number one, we believe that Jesus rose from the dead. We believe in the resurrected Jesus Christ. We believe you got to repent, confess, and be baptized in order to be saved. We believe that we are a Bible church. What that means is building a New Testament church is not in the scriptures. Because when the Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, all scripture is God-breathed, the word scripture is referring to the Old Testament. Even Peter used Joel when he was talking about the building of the church. So the church is not only built off the New Testament, it's built off the Old Testament. Now where the New Testament supersedes the Old Testament, to God be all the glory. But the church is to be a Bible church. Are you with me here? That's what we believe. We don't believe in building a New Testament church. Uh, We believe in central leadership because it's in the Bible. Acts chapter 15. There was a central leader and central leadership, a group that came together to lead the movement. We believe 
that you speak where the Bible is silent and you're silent where the Bible speaks. That's what we believe. In other words, if the Bible says it, just obey it. Bible says just, but if the Bible doesn't say anything that condemns or goes against that, which we, that, that, which is what we're preaching, you're good to go because God loves creativity. Genesis chapter two. He gave Adam the charge to explain everything to all those. You can name those animals, whatever you want to name. Duckbill, platypus, giraffe, hippo, dog, cat, chicken. And we know Adam wasn't a black man. We we know that right there. Because then he had to give up his rib. And you know black man's not going to give up his rib right there. Here's an illustration that really moves me. In Greece, this is a true story too. They say to prevent idiotic statements or to prevent idiotic statesmen from passing idiotic laws upon the people that they would take as idiotic convictions, lawmakers were asked to introduce all new laws while standing on a platform with a rope around their neck. If the law passed, the rope was removed. If it failed, the platform was removed. That's radical, is it not? And yet the platform gets removed from Buddha. Because Buddha can't save you. The platform is removed from Joseph Smith and the Mormon teaching, even though they started a movement. Because the word of God is the only standard. The platform gets removed from false teaching right here. And we've got to have deep conviction. We've got to have deep conviction. You know, when Julius Caesar landed here in in Britain, he had, of course, the Roman legions. And uh, he took up dare we say, a bold and decisive step to ensure that they were very victorious. And so he orders his men to march to the edge of uh, the cliff. And the cliff was uh, uh, over the cliffs of Dover, actually. Uh, and he commanded them to look down at the water below. And when, he, when they looked down at the water below, there were all the ships that they sailed in on. And the ships that they sailed in on were on fire. He burned them. No turning back. No going back. We're going to have victory or we're going to die trying. Is that your heart for what we're doing? Victory or die trying. I'm burning my boat. I'm burning that path back into my old fellowship, my old life, my old teachings, my old idiotic laws I lived by. I'm burning it all. I'm removing the plank. And I'm going to embrace what the Bible teaches the church is supposed to look like. The church was a movement. They evangelized the nations in one generation. And this is our heart. We, we've got to get radically committed to what we're doing. Even on a Sunday, we, you know, sometimes you kind of come rolling in at 1015 right there. And, you know, if you really want to know the heart of a church, you just see the, you test the singing. That's one of the things I look at. See, how's everybody singing? Because singing comes from your heart. And then I, I look at people if they come early or on time. See, the reason why I look at that is because when you come early to something, it's because you want to be there. You've done it. You've, got, you've gone to something. I want to be there early. 
Front row tickets. Woo, don't want to. Woo! <laughs> you come early. And yet we're building such an incredible palatial structure of faith here. We, we've got to come early to it. I've been inspired by those who are radically committed in the church. Uh, uh, we've got a young man who, of course, he did the welcome today. Our brother Sean right there. And Sean has started this, this incredible group called Crank. And uh, Crank is, uh, what's the acronym? How's it go again? Creating Radical Athletes in God's Never-Ending Kingdom. Now, now, you go, oh, yeah, you probably talked to somebody about that. No, he didn't. He says, I just, I, just, I want, I want we, let's, let's do this. And so you may have gotten this, the text that Sean's, okay, it's 7 a.m. We're going to jog for Jesus. <laughs> we're meeting at Camden Town. Where you at? <laughs> I mean, I go, we need a young man like that who wants to do something. And yet his mom is studying the Bible right there, and we're praying for her to become a true disciple. When I think about radical commitment, I think about Martin and Teresa Scott right there. You know, Martin Scott is, Martin's a preacher. Martin's a preacher. I know he's he's going, Michael, stop it, but no. Martin's a preacher. He's a preacher. They have more faith than sadly some of the individuals that were in our former fellowship that love the loaves and fishes, that love their homes, love their lives more than they love Jesus Christ. Martin and Teresa gave up everything and moved here. And the church would not be the same without them. That's radical commitment. They're they're, they're in your midst. I think about uh, Michael and Maria Hart just moving from Curacao. I think about even Rafiq moving all the way down from Ireland as well. But but, but I I really believe, as Acts chapter 2 says, they were all together and devoted. I'm fired up that Carlos and Carla are moving down from Madrid, Spain. They're coming down from Madrid, Spain, and they are serious. They are moving to be with us and be a part of the church, guys. See, when you're in a radical movement, it calls for radical commitment. Radical evangelism. Acts chapter 3. Still with me here? Radical evangelism. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer, at 3 in the afternoon. And why was it 3 in the afternoon? Because that's when Jesus died. Pretty awesome, right? Now, a man crippled from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put to beg from those who were going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave him his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, silver or gold, I do not have. But what I have, I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up. Now, you understand something. It was the faith of Peter and John that healed this guy. This guy was looking at them, not expecting to be healed. He was expecting to get something from them. So we've got to have more faith sometimes than the individuals that we are called to get in there with. They will not get it. You need to have enough faith that they will get it. And you need to have enough faith to go after them to help them to get it. Got it? Amen. Says this. Verse 7. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up. And instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went 
with him into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and recognize and, and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While the beggar held on to Peter and John. I mean, this guy, he's just hanging on right there. All the people were astonished and came rushing to the place in a place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, men of Israel, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godlessness or godliness, we have made this man walk? And he says, why does this surprise you? Because they had seen the miracles of Jesus while Jesus walked. They knew the miracles of Jesus. But he's saying this because he said, did you just think that Jesus' miracles were while he walked the earth? Did you not think that they would happen while he left the earth? Why does this surprise you? Jesus is still alive. And yet we need to have that same faith. That radical miracles, hey, shouldn't surprise us. It should help us go, Jesus is still with us. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant, Jesus Christ. See how he has to give those other names? This is the God of Isaac and Jacob and the God of a lot of people believe in God. But they just don't believe in the God of Isaac, Jacob, and our fathers. They don't believe in the God, Jesus Christ. They will tell you they believe in that God. Oh, yeah, Christian, Muslim, we, we believe in the same thing. No, we don't. It's totally different. We do not believe in the same. You can't have two. No. Two. Can you imagine a wife who, who has two husbands? Mm, that'd be a different women's day, wouldn't it? Woo, that'd be, woo, that'd be afraid of men. Afraid of, for the, afraid of women on, on women's day right there. We'd be getting killed right there. Says you handed him over to be killed, and you disowned, disowned him before Pilate, though he decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. Verse 19, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. And the church said, Amen. radical evangelism. This guy gets changed. You know what's powerful about this guy? Um studying him out is, you know, he, he's there and he's gone there to beg and ask for money. And yet they preach to him. They preach to him. I mean, I don't, sadly, I don't have a lot of faith all the time when I meet someone who is homeless that I could preach the word of God, not give them money. In fact, we, we live in a, We live in a time where sometimes homeless people, they get mad that you don't want to. I met homeless people that get mad that what you want to give them. Hey, can I buy you a sandwich? No, I don't like sandwiches. <laughs> Oh, really? You are the most distinguished homeless guy I've ever met in my life. You don't like sandwiches. You're sitting on the ground here. I'm trying to buy you a sandwich here. It happened to be right outside of Sainsbury. Went, wow. And the, the issue is because I'm trying to give them physical. I, I need to preach. This is radical evangelism. This is radical. When will there be a day where the church has a ministry for homeless people? When will there be a, a, a day when we have that here in London? more importantly, are you radical in your evangelism? Are you really just going after it? You know, some of the, some of the individuals that challenge my faith to believe they can become disciples in London are bus drivers, the lorry drivers, 
These lorry drivers are some of the most hardened men in the world. I mean, you got the mom with five children there. It's raining. It's cold. She's got her umbrella in 50 different bits. It's here. She's got the kids. They're screaming. They're going this way. They're going that way. The lorry (laughs) just drives past. And you just go, can that guy become a disciple? (laughs) I, I struggle. And yet, I'm so encouraged that our, our, our brother Daniel Balaj, he's not here today. He's traveling. He has to go back. To, he's had to go back to Slovakia to handle some things with his license. He is one of those lorry bus drivers. And he's one of those kind-hearted, little bubbly guys in the world right there. And we were unified in the, in our, in the, the back. Uh, his back was out and my back was out. So we were having a back fellowship over the phone. He was, Michael, is there, do this and take this and put the paint here and take a heating pad and put it. I'm like, okay, Dan, thank you. He's discipling me right there on my back and he's got back injuries and all that stuff. Well, he gets, he shares his faith with this Italian zealot guy who, who, who wants to be a bus driver as well. Who is, who was a former bus driver whose name is Federico. Now you may know Federico. Federico. I mean, if you look up zealous Italian guy in the dictionary, you'll see Federico there. Federico Federico and I I asked if I could share this story Federico has gone through hell to become a disciple He, he, he has had to repent of wicked sins he has had to come out of an adulterous relationship he has even had to be to the point of being homeless and yet last night he's looking at us looking at me at least and going well, all I need is Jesus, right? Amen. I go, that's right, Federico. And today he's come to be baptized. You know, I'm fired up about, about uh, Shola, who's come to be baptized as well. Now, now, now Shola, Shola was one of the first visitors at the Middlesex Bible Talk. Me and Jen Watkins were sitting there like Ebony and Ivory looking at each other. Going, okay, we got, we're going to crank, we're a movement of God here. Jen, Jen's like, yeah. Okay, we're, where's everybody at? Shola came on out. She listened to my terrible jokes, my boring Bible study right there. And today she's come to be a sold out disciple. She's going to be baptized. We, 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 this summer, we, we just got to have a summer surge. We just got to get radical in our evangelism, guys. Well, we have some radical miracles. Question, are you being radical in your evangelism? Radical. Not are you doing it. Are you being radical? Are you approaching individuals? You go, this guy, probably not this guy. You know, yesterday was great being out. I, I got a chance. I don't know why God does this to me. I went up to a guy who looked completely unopened. He looked mean. He looked like he wouldn't love Jesus. And I start sharing my faith. Turns out this guy's a film director. Wow. He just got through leaving a talk about God and he just, it built me up. He goes, wow. I, I, he was from France. Amen. Amen. And he says, you know, I, he goes, I've, I've done films all over the world. I'm going to and he gave me his film and he gave me his autograph and signed it and all this stuff and showed me his, his, Google profile and he's done a ton of films and he, he's a film director. I go, wow, I moved from LA. I was an actor. We had this great talk about God because you know, the one thing he goes, I do films. I'm going to, and he's going to Africa. He's going to be in Africa for a year. Aww. He's taking his family there. And I go, we're going to plant a church in Africa. So he was encouraging me, but he goes, you know, the one thing I just don't have the faith to do. 
I go, what is it? Because he's telling me he's going to Africa and he's got the the film he did is called uh, Africa Trek. He walked from Ethiopia all the way to southern to South Africa. Walked. Him and his wife, they walked the whole, he goes, we walked the entire, and the the documentary kind of breaks it down. He gave me a copy of it. I go, that's pretty radical. (laughs) Don't know if I got that kind of faith. He goes, the one thing I don't have the faith to do is what you and all these young people that are with you are doing today. And I really believe because he doesn't have the Holy Spirit. He's afraid to share his faith. We've got to get radical in our evangelism. Acts chapter 4. Radical boldness. Radical boldness. Of course, they throw Peter in jail. John in jail. And in verse 13, or verse 12, they say this, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. We believe that, right, church? When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were Cornell bred, Oxford learned, King's College and UCL schooled. No. No, they were unschooled, ordinary men. I'll leave it right there. <laughs> they were astonished and took note that these men had been with Jesus. Boldness and Jesus go hand in hand. Boldness and Jesus go hand in hand. No boldness, no Jesus. People recognize that Jesus died for his teachings. And so they go, wow, these men are like Jesus. They they recognize that they could be crucified just like Jesus by laying it on out. And you will get crucified when you lay it on out. But yet, we've got to have a radical boldness about us. There's just got to be a radical boldness. Now, we got an incredible, incredible chance to be bold, not only evangelistically, but I really believe we got to be really bold at really raising funds here in the church. We got to be bold. Uh, I'm working on a couple of campaigns myself. I'm working with the Barnett Bulldogs. Uh, It's my son's basketball team. And they've given me a couple of grants that we can put together to create this incredible, incredible, well, applications for grants that I can apply, we can apply two and four to get money to help have the government start funding not only sporting events that the church can do, but also the likes of our open mic and stuff like that. Uh, And yet it's just going to, you got to go there and you got to give a speech and you got to persuade them to give you the money. (laughs) I go, okay, the Lord is just calling me. I I just got to go for it. I got to do it right there. I got to be bold. We've got our special missions coming up here in the next couple of months. And yeah, next month, actually. Yeah. Next month. (laughs) and absolutely we got to sacrifice but what about being bold and asking friends family other individuals to give to our movement give to what we're doing there's got to be a radical boldness right there just a radical boldness You, you just never know what could happen if you are bold and lastly radical discipleship Radical discipleship. The first century church had radical discipleship. Acts chapter 5. In verse 36 of chapter 4, we understand that Joseph, of course Barnabas, sells his property for the mission right there. Amen? Pretty, pretty radical. 
radical sacrifice. But then in chapter 5, it says, Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said to Ananias, How is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you receive for the land? And when he says you've lied to the Holy Spirit, he's talking about the church because God's Holy Spirit is with the church. How is it that you have lied to the church? He says, didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't it? Wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. Great fear seized all who heard what happened. Then the young men came forward, wrapped up his body and carried him out and buried him about three hours later. His wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said. That is the price. Peter said to her, how could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in, and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. And the church said, Whoo, radical discipleship. Here you have the beginning of the first century church, and you have God, honestly, God with radical discipleship because the church was too young to tolerate individuals who had a false sense of reality about themselves. Ananias and Sapphira had a few issues going on. Number one, they're very prideful. They're very prideful. Why? Because they were trying to look more committed than they really were. They were trying to look more sold out than they really were. They were trying to look a part that they did not live up to. And it hurt them, but it also hurt the church. They lied. They feigned commitment. They pretended to be super committed, but on a heart level, they really weren't. And they, did, they sold the land. All they had to do was just say exactly what they gave. But they wanted to look like Barnabas. And that's when the movement stops being about God. When it starts to be about people, and you start to do radical things for the praise of men, not the praise of God, you're in trouble. You're in trouble of dying spiritually. You're in trouble. And yet, some could ask, why such a harsh discipleship at such an early time in the movement? That's exactly why. That's exactly why. It was an early time in the movement. And this was not the time for false commitment, lies, and people being totally not with the program right there. The other thing you learn is Ananias and Sapphira, they, they, they just had that little marriage sin right there, sin buddies. Afraid to tell on each other. I'm glad we don't believe in that in our movement. My, my wife will tell on me in a heartbeat. If we got some sin going on, and Kip comes to me, George comes to me, Michael comes to me. Yep, Michelle told us. And you know what? I will tell on her as well. In a heartbeat. I said, Maria. Michelle said this. She laughed at me when my back went down. And it did that. 
her and Michael Adrian right there cracking up on those embarrassing questions that nurse was asking me on the phone right there. Isn't it cool where you're in a church where you don't have to hide sin in your marriage? Isn't it great where you just be open and there's no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ because we all are sinners? I really believe if you look the worst, you'll grow the most. But you've got to confess sins in order to get some radical discipleship in your life. They could have got radical discipleship early on if they would have got open about their insecurity. And said, I'm just feeling so insecure. Look what Barnabas has done. Maybe I'm not accepted. But no, they had to try to, they they were not open. You know, you know what happens when you're not getting radical discipleship? It's just because you're not open. If you're not getting true discipleship, someone in your life really helping you with it's because you are not talking about that stuff that's in there that's just not so good. And yet this is this is who we gotta be to be that radical movement. We've got to be able to be open and honest and not lie to one another. Question Have you had insecure thoughts? Have you compared yourself in the church? Or are you focused on God? I mean, are you, are you fired up whether your name gets mentioned or it doesn't? You know, someone came to me and said, my name never gets mentioned in front of the church. I got an attitude with you. Wow. It's all about God. We don't have to do it for the appraisal, the approval of men. Ananias and Sapphira, they, they want it to be seen as so radical. And so they faked it out. That cannot be our heart, guys. God discipled his first century church by taking them on out. Let us speak truthfully to one another. Let us be that radical, radical movement that evangelizes the nations in this generation. We'll come back and we'll tackle chapter 5 next week. To God be all the glory. Amen. Amen, church. Let's all stand. We would like to thank you for listening to that episode of the podcast. If you would like video versions of these episodes, whether it's sermon highlights or interviews, feel free to check us out on our website or view them on our YouTube channel. That's londonchurch.org.uk. That's L O N D O N C H U R C H. .org.uk and for all other updates and information whether it's services events or devotionals you can find all that on our website also once again we'd like to thank you for listening and we'll catch you on the next one